If you have a Bible uh, with you, it'd be great for you to open it up to Paul's letter to the Galatians. We're closing up, uh, coming to the close of uh, to the close of uh, our sermon series through this letter. We've got two sermons left, one tonight on Galatians 6, 1 through 10, and then next time we'll finish Galatians out uh, in two weeks. So our text tonight is Galatians 6, 1 through 10. If you want to use one of the Black Pew Bibles underneath the seats in front of you, you're welcome to take that and open to page 975. That's where the text is, page 975 in the Pew Bibles. Let me read this text for us. And then we'll ask God to help us, and then we'll hear from God's Word. So, listen to God's Word for you tonight from Galatians 6, beginning in verse 1. Brothers, if anyone... Actually, I'm sorry, I'm going to start in 526. So, 526. Ready? Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But let each one test his own work, and then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor. For each will have to bear his own load. One who has taught the word must share all good things with the one who teaches. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption, but the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. And let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. Let's ask God to help us understand this portion of his word. Father, we come to you tonight again and pray that you would work as you have done in your church throughout the ages. And Father, send your spirit to help us rightly understand this portion of the Bible and not just to understand it intellectually, God, not just to be able to put together Paul's thinking, but, but to understand it in a sense that we are affected by it and changed by it. So we know that the Holy Spirit is necessary if that's going to take place. And so spirit, come tonight. Do good work on us. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. So, what is the church? What is the church? Is the church um, a building that we go to once a week or more to have a worship service? Um, A number of people have asked me as we prepare to go and plant this new church in San Antonio, uh, do you have a building yet? And I understand the sentiment behind that question, and the answer is no. (laughs) And usually what I say is, well, we need some people before we're going to have a building, because this is sort of a church plant, right? We're starting this thing from scratch. And uh, that's a good question, and buildings are very valuable, but I think sometimes that question speaks to maybe a view of what the church is that isn't super helpful. Uh, The church isn't a building. Uh, And even the phrase, I'm going to go to church can be unhelpful. We don't go to church. We are the church. Uh, We go to gather as the church for worship, sometimes in a building that we possess solely for that purpose. But we are the church. So when you think of the church, what do you think of? Is it um, just a building that people go to every now and then to worship? Is it uh, just a non-profit institution that exists 
under certain tax laws in our country for the purpose of helping our community and serving other people? Is it just a social club? What is the church? That's a really important question for you if you're a Christian and for you if you're not a Christian, if you're thinking about Christianity at all. It's important to know what the church is and how it should function. And that's what St. Paul is really getting at tonight in Galatians chapter 6. He's asking and answering a, a very significant question about how the church should function in the life of an ordinary Christian, of people just like you and me. And so as we get to this text tonight, uh, I want you to keep that big question of what the church is and what the church should be doing sort of in, in the front of your mind as we explore this together, because that's really the question that we want to begin answering tonight. So St. Paul has been writing this letter. We've been studying it for some time now, and we reached chapter 6 tonight, remembering that this letter was written to a group of young church plants in the region that was then known as Galatia, that's today southern Turkey, that he had planted and then left to go plant other churches elsewhere in the ancient world. And after Paul had left, other men had come into these churches and begun teaching something different from what Paul taught. These men are known in the Bible as the Judaizers. And they taught that Jesus, faith in Jesus, is essential, it's important, it's fundamental. You must have faith in Jesus to be saved. But... It's not sufficient. Faith in Jesus is essential, but it's not sufficient. In order to really be right with God, to be justified, and in order to really be a part of God's family, to be a member of the church, you must not only believe in Jesus, but you also must functionally become a Jew. Hence their name, the Judaizers. You have to get circumcised. You have to observe certain dietary restrictions and festivals. And Paul got wind of this sort of teaching and thinking in Galatia and got really ticked off. And then he wrote this letter. And as we've seen throughout Galatians, Paul is fired up. He's angry because he wants everyone to know, he wants you to know, that the gospel, when it's added to, is no longer the gospel. And that this gospel that the Galatians are preaching is really, as he says in chapter 1, not any gospel at all. And so he's talked about that in many ways. And in the last few chapters, particularly chapter 5, he's talked about how the gospel plays itself out in your life as a Christian. In our lives as Christians, as a gathering of Christians that we call the church. And he's talked about how when the Holy Spirit infuses a group of people with fruit, the fruit of the Spirit, when the Holy Spirit comes and changes people's lives, what you see and what we saw in the ancient world was, was an, a social impossibility. We saw Jews and Gentiles, people who formerly had hated one another, sitting down at the same table together, sharing fellowship, having communion together. We saw Jesus Christ building unity in his body. That's what the Spirit does when a community is infused with the grace of God and with the power of the Spirit. Lives are changed and unity is built. And so we've looked at what those fruit of the Spirit are at the end of chapter 5. And then tonight, as Paul reaches chapter 6, he begins to sort of talk more about the practical implications of the fruit of the Spirit, of the presence of the Spirit in your lives individually for our community for our church, for our fellowship. And so Galatians chapter 6, verses 1 through 10, is really all about life together. And as we look at it tonight, there's two points I want to make for you regarding life together, regarding the church, 
And those two points are on um, your bulletin on the back. You can look at them there. But the two big points are this. The church is a community of humble care, and the church is a community of helpful support. It's a community of humble care and a community of helpful support. So first, the church is a community of humble care. And that word care is very important because it implies a one-anothering that is to exist inherently in any church. You see, when you are a part of a church, when you have placed your faith in Jesus and seen the Spirit work in your lives, you are no longer all about me. You are now all about we. The church is, in a sense, the, the place where you grow up. It's, it's the seedbed in which your spiritual fruit, fruit grows. And so it's very important as we begin to look at this text that Paul is deeply concerned with. In fact, he's almost presupposing the idea that communal life, Life together is an essential element of Christianity. It's an essential element of your own growth as a believer. Caring implies other people being in your life. And we're going to look at that in more detail right now. But as you read this text, particularly verse 1, you might ask yourself, how is Paul here talking about humbly caring for one another? Because it doesn't really look very plain on the surface, particularly in verse 1. Look at that again. He says, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, uh-oh, <laughs> if anyone gets busted, sinning, what should happen? You who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. So Paul's saying here, and listen, this is really important. He's saying that the way our care for each other shows up is often through loving confrontation. The way that you show the people sitting on the rows next to you and in front of you and behind you that you really care about them is that you don't let them get away with sin. There's a great quote in the bulletin, on the front of the bulletin, from a guy named Tim Chester that I thought made this point very well. Look at what he says there. God is using the different people, the contrasting personalities in your church to change your heart. He's using the difficult people, the annoying people, the sinful people. He's placed you together so you can rub off each other's rough edges. It's as if God has put us like rocks into a bag and is shaking us about so that we collide with one another. Sometimes sparks fly, but gradually we become beautiful, smooth gemstones. Remember the next time someone is rubbing you the wrong way, that God is smoothing you down. Now, um, let me show you that Paul's really significantly saying something significant here when he's talking about caring for one another. He says, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual, and that doesn't mean like the spiritual elites, of the church. It doesn't mean the elders. It doesn't mean the most godly people. It doesn't mean the people who have a quiet time every day. It means any Christian. Because what Paul's just been saying at the end of chapter 5 is that if you're a Christian, you possess the Holy Spirit and you're bearing the fruit of the Spirit. So you, Christian, are responsible to, kept, to confront people who are caught in transgressions for what purpose? You who are spiritual should what? Restore. To restore him. That word there, restore, is a medical term in the original language. It, it refers to, to the mending of a bone that had been broken. I was watching the NCAA basketball tournament uh, last couple of weekends, and 
One game, I think it was in the Elite Eight, Louisville was playing, I can't remember who they were playing, but uh, one of their players, a guy by the name of Kevin Ware, was diving for a loose ball right in front of his team's bench. And as he came down, his right leg just completely buckled. And it was, it was, to be honest, one of the most gruesome, grisly injuries I've ever seen in sports. I actually turned the TV on right after the injury had happened, and he was laying down on the floor receiving treatment. And you know what I did. I thought, man, I wonder what happened to him. And so I checked it out on YouTube. <laughs> and as I saw it on YouTube, I mean, I was just, it, it was disgusting. It's one of those things that when you see it, you can't unsee it. I mean, his bone literally just popped right out of his skin. And one of the most amazing things about this injury was watching the reaction of his team's bench because it happened right in front of the bench. And as soon as it happened, the teammates, lit, I mean, literally some of them began to gag. It was that disgusting. Some of them just started weeping, and they were all just mortified and terrified by what they had seen. The coach just walked away and had his hands in front of his mouth and started crying. But eventually, a couple of his teammates came to him and sat down with him and were on one knee holding his hand, encouraging him. And I, I thought it was just a really moving thing. And in a sense, that's exactly what we as a church are to be like. We are to, we are to see the grisly, gruesome nature of our sins, and, and in a sense, recoil against it. But then we are to move towards one another with the intent to restore, with the intent to help, with the intent to love and care. So we're to care one another, sometimes by confronting one another. Now, that doesn't mean that you get to be the morality police. Now, some of you like that, just by the way you are wired or by past experiences. You enjoy the idea that you can keep other people in line and making sure everyone's doing exactly what they should be doing at all times. That's not what Paul's saying here. Notice I didn't say that the church is a community of confrontation. I said the church is a community of care. We don't confront because we like to confront by definition. We confront because we care. Confrontation is, is intended to produce restoration. Confrontation happens because we care. So you people that hear this verse and think, oh man, that gives me justification to to make sure that everyone's doing, doing everything they should be doing and dotting their I's and, and crossing their T's. That's not exactly what it's saying. In fact, if you struggle with that, you should probably just keep your mouth shut. But on the other hand, it's not saying that you shouldn't ever confront someone. Clearly, Paul's saying that part of caring for one another is dealing with one another's transgressions. So those of you who are on the other end of the spectrum who might say things like, you know, that's really that's really not my business, or that's, that's going to be a really awkward, tense conversation, or, or I'm going to let Pastor Luke and Pastor Phil deal with that one. They're, they're the experts. They know how to pastor people and have those sorts of conversations. But that's not necessarily the way you should go either, okay? So we have to care for one another, and sometimes that happens through loving, conversation, loving confrontations. But the only way we can do that well is when we are a community of humble care. When we're a community of humble care. And Paul shows us that. I love the second part of verse 1. Look at what he says. You're, if you're spiritual, you spiritual people, Christians, restore the brother or sister who's been caught in a transgression in a spirit of gentleness. And then what does he say? Very next thing. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. And then verse 3. If anyone thinks he's something when he's nothing, he deceives himself. In other words, 
Don't think that when you are actually planning to confront someone with the intent to restore, planning to deal with sin in a community, planning to care for someone in that way, don't think that you're, you're coming down from on high spiritually to deal with these lowly sinners who are struggling. No, 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 no. Confrontation confrontational care in a church is not us coming down from on high and dealing with the lowly sinners. It's us coming alongside one another as sinners saved by grace together and seeking together to repent and believe the gospel. Paul also talks about the importance of humility in our care for one another in verse 26 of chapter 5. Look what he says there. Don't become what? Conceited. Which is just basically another word for arrogance or haughtiness. Don't become conceited or arrogant. Because when you do that, he says two things happen there in verse 26. When you become conceited, either you are provoking, you're going to end up provoking one another, or you're going to end up envying one another. So conceit is followed by one of those two things. Now, I think this is, this is brilliant analysis of the human heart. It's brilliant analysis of what we do. Because when we, are, when we are arrogant, when we are conceited, the way we relate to others is from an inherently competitive standpoint. We either think, boy, I'm certainly doing better than so-and-so right here. I can see very clearly that they're struggling in their marriage, that their kids are rebellious, that they're not engaging in the spiritual disciplines. It's, it's very apparent to me. And so your heart wants to, wants to prove that, not just to yourself again and again, but to others as well. And so you will be provocative. You will provoke. You will seek almost always in subtle ways to show that you're sort of one-upping this person in this area and in this area. Conceit leads to provocation. That's when you are comparing yourself and you see yourself as better than others. But interestingly, Paul also says that conceit leads to envy. So this is, this is the other side of that same coin. When you're self-focused and arrogant and conceited, and you look at someone and you think, I'm doing better than them, you begin to provoke. But when you look at someone and think, man, I'm nowhere near where that person is. That person is so much more spiritual than me. They're so much more together than me. They're so much more adept and able than I am in so many different areas that I might as well just give up. And, and you feel jealous and you feel envious, and you feel apathetic. Now, the first of those two scenarios, provoking other people, we tend to think, well, that guy's just arrogant. He's just a provocateur, right? But we don't think that as much with the second of the two scenarios. We don't think of envy and jealousy and even apathy and self-loathing as, as results of conceit. But that's exactly what Paul says it is. Both are proud. Both exist because of a lack of humility in your heart. And both of those things do not lead to us caring for one another. They lead to us thinking of ourselves first and usually thinking of ourselves only. So when we love one another and seek to care one another for one another in community, it has to be done with humility, Paul's saying. And listen, folks, listen. The only way that this can happen, the only way that this can build us up together as the body of Christ at Rincon Mountain Presbyterian Church is when the gospel is being believed and when the gospel is being worked out. Uh, Tim Keller is fond of saying that humility is not thinking less of yourself. Humility is thinking of yourself less. And, and that begins to happen 
only when you begin to get your eyes off of yourself and get them on to Jesus. You see, a lot of us in our life groups have been studying the gospel-centered life. And in the gospel-centered life, there's that wonderful illustration that they call the cross chart. And the cross chart is intended to explain and teach exactly what I'm trying to communicate to you now. It's saying that Christian growth really consists of an ever-growing sense of your own sinfulness and of your own neediness for grace and of your own brokenness and an ever-growing sense of God's holiness. And you have to have both of those things in order to have Christian growth. When you only have an ever-growing sense of your own sinfulness, then that leads to you envying others. But when you only have an ever-growing sense of God's holiness but not your sinfulness, that leads to you provoking others. But when you have a sense of both of those, that God is more and more holy as you grow and grow as a Christian, and that you are more and more sinful as you grow and grow as a Christian, and the cross is in the middle, getting bigger and bigger and bigger, so that you're not just seeing your sin growing, you're not just seeing God's holiness growing, you're seeing your need for Jesus and Jesus' provision in his death growing. And when you start to see that, when you, when you stop just looking at your sin or just looking at all of God's rules and God's law and God's holiness and how everyone else other than you is breaking them. But when you see both of those and the cross in the middle getting bigger and bigger and bigger, then, then you start thinking of yourself less and you start thinking of Jesus more and thanking Jesus more. And as you do that, it's filtered out into the community life. It's filtered out into your relationship with others. It means you can really start with humility, caring for other people more than you care for yourself. So you see then how Paul's saying the gospel creates and produces in us by the power of the Spirit a community of humble care. A second thing he says, second thing about the church. The first thing is that it's a community of humble care. Second thing, the church is a community of helpful support. And I think mainly in verse 2, of chapter 6 is where we see this. Look at what Paul says there. I love this verse. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. So that's interesting in and of itself that you fulfill the law. You do what the law commands when you're loving others, when you're bearing others' burdens. A couple of important things to notice there. First of all, the idea of burdens, you know, it's self-explanatory. A burden is just something that's too big for you to carry by yourself. And one of the things that struck me about this verse, as we think about the church being a community of helpful support, is that Paul assumes here that all of you have burdens. You know, he doesn't say, it's almost more interesting what he doesn't say. He doesn't say here, you godly spiritual people, or leaders in the church, or people who really have it together, find some of those people that are really struggling and start a discipleship relationship with them where you give them the seven secrets to Christian growth. He doesn't say that. He doesn't say, make sure you care for the few people among you who are really having a hard time. No. He assumes that all of us are in this position. He says, bear one another's burdens. What are you burdened with? You know, for, for me, it's, and I'm sure for many of you, this is the same case. It, having children has just, it's shown me that I cannot carry the, the burdens I have in my life by myself. Uh, you know, oftentimes we have those discussions of, now that we have three kids, people often ask Marianne and I, which one was the hardest? You know, the transition from one to two or from two to three, which one was the most difficult? And, and 
as I think about that, I think, you know, really for me, it was zero to one in a lot of ways. Because from zero to one, my life was completely transformed. I now could never, never do what I wanted to when I wanted to do it again. Uh, I realized that I have a, bur- a literal physical burden that weighs about seven pounds, right? That's growing every day that I cannot carry on my own. And it just, it's, it's brought me to the end of myself in many, to- many ways, and it's done the same for Marianne. Some of you might resonate with that. Is your burden just being a parent, trying to do it well? Is your burden some sort of emotional trauma that you've experienced or are experiencing? Or oftentimes when you wake up, you feel so bad and so depressed and so dark that you're not sure how you're going to make it through the day without doing something really foolish that you're not sure anyone cares or understands. Your burden is so heavy that you just you, you cry every morning, you cry every night, you cry at lunch. Maybe your burden's family brokenness, which, man, seems like all of us have. Your kids just have rebelled and turned from Jesus as they've grown up, and you're, you're thinking, this thought dominates your heart. What is it that I, that I could have done different? What did I do to mess this up? Why have they done this? And you might even start thinking, why hasn't God kept his promises? And it's just a, it's just a burden on your heart all the time. Maybe your burden is just the, the fact that you, you just don't feel like you have any, any time. You, you hear me preaching. You hear Phil preaching. You, you hear these admonitions to read your Bible and do this and do that and engage in the spiritual disciplines and seek to grow with Jesus. And you're thinking, man, I, I'm, I'm doing everything I can now. And I don't have any time left. I worked 70 hours this week and I, just, I don't know how else to do it. You're just swamped. Listen, the church exists to help you bear your burdens. You cannot be a Christian by yourself. No Christian is an island. We all are in this together. All of us have these burdens. When you feel that way, don't think you're alone. When you feel that way, know that you're together with others. So so how can you practically, as a Christian in this church, Help build a community of helpful support by bearing one another's burdens. There's a lot you can do. You know, one thing you need to just do is is have intentional friendships. Intentional relationships where you're willing to help those friends of yours, but also where you express a willingness to open up and share your burdens. You know, I I love 2 Corinthians chapter 7. Um, Paul, this is a great example, I think, of what I'm trying to say. Paul here is talking about, let me just read it. 2 Corinthians 7, 5. Here's what he says. Even when we came into Macedonia, our bodies had no rest, but we were afflicted at every turn, fighting without and fear within. So he is burdened. But God, verse 6, who comforts the downcast and the burden, comforted us by, by me having a really good quiet time that morning. No, that's not what he says. Comforted us by, by taking me up into the third heaven and showing me amazing glories, like Paul says happened to him in another context. No. Comforted me by reminding me of my calling as an apostle to plant churches and preach the gospel. No, comforted me by the coming of Titus. Comforted me by, by a friend. And not only by his coming, but also by you, by the comfort with which you, Corinthians, have comforted me. God comforts us through relationships, through the church, through community. So do you have the sort of relationships in your life where you can be open about your struggles 
Or you can say, I need you to share this burden with me. I don't know what to do with this. And where you are doing that for others. Because if you don't have that relationship, you're not living in a biblical manner and you're not being a part of the church. So that's one thing you can do. You can be involved in intentional relationships. I'm not saying go out and make three new friends and write down this other check, check mark to-do list of what I need to do to be a good Christian from Pastor Luke and Pastor Phil. No, just think about relationships that you already have and insert a little intentionality in them. The main one should be your own marriage, obviously, but there should obviously be other ones as well. So think about that, pray about that, ask Jesus to help you in that. And and I've already mentioned this, but another really helpful way that we can practically bear one another's burdens is not by simply being willing to bear others' burdens, but by also being willing to share ours. Um, Oftentimes, and I, I think this is the case with a lot of us, Because a lot of us really like to think that we're we're put together and that we've got it going and that we're doing well. And and we love the idea, and actually some of us really do this well, of helping other people who are clearly struggling. But some of us really struggle with expressing our own need and expressing our own burdens and expressing our own brokenness. And listen, you can't have people bear your burdens if no one knows what your burdens are. So very practical way to do it. Open your life up to someone and be willing to say, hey, I'm really struggling with this. When someone asks you how they can pray for you, don't say, unless it's, you know, that's a bad thing to say. You can say this, pray for my great aunt Edna, who's having surgery next week on her foot. That's great. But share your life a little bit. Pray for me because, you know, I've really been struggling with just laziness. You know, I get up and I don't want to do my job and I need help. I need you to help me. Pray for me because... My kid is um, every day doing the same thing and I tell him to stop and he doesn't stop and I get really angry and frustrated and I'm not, I'm not sure how to deal with that. Will you, can you help me? Let's sit down and have coffee and talk. Pray for me because, you know, I've got this issue at work and it's not a competence issue, it's a relational issue and my boss is just a jerk and I don't know how to deal with him and I'm trying to be a Christian. Can you help me with that? Don't, don't totally, you know, spiritually throw up on people right there on the spot and dump it all on them, but you got to give them something, right? Give people something to work with, or else no one can bear your burdens. So those are just some really, hopefully really practical admonitions for myself and for you as, as far as how we can help one another and bear one another's burdens. That's what the church is supposed to be. That's what life together is. We are a community of humble care and a community of helpful service. Aren't we? I mean, the church should be a place where people are free, free to express their need for care and free to express their need for support. And sometimes I fear that that the church is the last place where anyone would ever open themselves up and make themselves vulnerable in that way. And that is, that's death to the gospel. That is anti-gospel. And so may we as as a body of Christ, may we as a local congregation, as an expression of the gospel through our relationships, Be a place where it's safe, not only to care for others, but to express care, not only to get support, but to be willing to give support. Let me read this story, and then we're done. I thought this story was hilarious. This is from a guy named John Ortberg, who was a pastor at Willow Creek and now is a pastor somewhere in the Bay Area, and he wrote this in his book, The Life You've Always Wanted. Here's what he writes. John and his wife once traded in their old Volkswagen Super Beetle for their first piece of new furniture a mauve sofa. 
The man at the furniture store warned them not to get it when he found out they had small children. You don't want a mauve sofa, he advised. Get something the color of dirt. But with naive optimism of young parenthood, they said, we know how to handle our children. Give us the mauve sofa. And from that moment on, everyone knew the number one rule in the house. Don't sit on the mauve sofa. Don't touch the mauve sofa. Don't play around the mauve sofa. Don't eat on, breathe on, look at, or think about the mauve sofa. It was like the forbidden tree in the Garden of Eden. On every other chair in the house you may freely sit, but upon this sofa, the mauve sofa, you may not sit, for in the day you sit thereupon you shall surely die. Then came the fall. One day there appeared on the mauve sofa a stain, a red stain, a red jelly stain. So John's wife, who had chosen the mauve sofa and adored it, lined up their three children in front of it. And this is my favorite part. Laura, age four, Mallory, two and a half, and Johnny, six months. (laughs) Do you see that, children? She asked. That's a stain, a red stain, a red jelly stain. The man at the sofa store says it is not coming out, not forever. Do you know how long forever is, children? That's how long we're going to stand here until one of you tells me who put the stain on the mauve sofa. Mallory was the first to break. With trembling lips and tear-filled eyes, she said, Laura did it. (laughs) Laura passionately denied it. Then there was silence for the longest time. No one said a word. John Ortberg knew they wouldn't, for they had never seen their mother so upset. He knew they wouldn't because they knew that if they did, they would spend eternity in the timeout chair. He knew they wouldn't because he was the one who put the red jelly stain on the sofa, and he wasn't saying anything. (laughs) May Rincon Mountain Church be a church where we're free to be people who put stains on sofas and still receive love. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are good to us and that you know our needs and so you've put us not just in a right relationship with you, but you've put us in a community, a community that's been empowered and enhanced by your Holy Spirit in a community where we gather together with other people who are like us, who have burdens like we have, who have needs like we have, other people who need us and whom we need ourselves. And so, Father, we pray that our life together would be one that that reflects the gospel well, that reflects your provision and our need. We pray that our life together, O oh God, would be one where we are free to be open and honest about our neediness and our weaknesses and our struggles, and where we will receive care, not an overbearing, pharisaical care, but a, a, a care that's humble, a care that's intended to restore, a care that's loving. And may we also, Father, be a community. May we live a life together, where we receive helpful support, where we bear one another's burdens, where we use our meager gifts and abilities to help others who really do need us. Father, thank you for putting us together as a family, as a community. Thank you for not leaving us alone, but giving us other brothers and sisters whom we can come alongside in life and love you and love one another together. And Father, we thank you that even now as we come to the table, that unity of not just our relationship with you, but of the one body of Jesus is being manifested. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.